Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And our movie today is a fun one. This is a movie that uh, is perhaps not all that well known today, but it was a fairly big deal at the time. Although, shockingly, it is a movie I never even heard of until about five years ago. So (laughs) I have to plead ignorance on this one. Somehow I missed this one and I've fallen in love with it ever since. Although, again, I did not grow up with it. So uh, the movie I am talking about is the fun little action adventure movie from 1991, Toy Soldiers starring Sean Astin and Will Wheaton and a bunch of other people. And it's about a uh, prep school in New York that gets taken over by terrorists and the kids need to fight back. And if it sounds like Red Dawn, you're right, because that's what it does sound like. (laughs) So anyway, uh, we're going to delve into this movie from 1991 that, again, is fairly new to me, but I love it with all of my heart because it's fun and exciting and well-made and goofy all at the same time. It's everything I look for in a movie. Uh, my guest for today's episode, let's see, I've had him on before. He was on uh, for Ernest Goes to Camp, which, which was a really fun episode I released last year. If you uh, want to grab a random Staff Picks episode that will make you laugh, go find Ernest Goes to Camp. Uh, let's see, he is a podcaster, movie fan. Uh, I get along with this guy great because we think very similarly, and it's always a treat to bring him back onto the show. Welcome back to Staff Picks to talk about toy soldiers. Jeremy Zare. Uh, thanks for having me, Mario. I'm really excited. I, lo- I love staff picks. I love the show, and I absolutely adore Toy Soldiers, so I'm glad that I'm on for this one. Although you, unlike me, probably saw it when it first came out. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, probably. I-, I remember it was one of those Saturday afternoon movies that played on the local Fox affiliate uh, when there was no sports. So it'd like there'd be pro wrestling, an infomercial with uh, Ron Popeil, and then Toy Soldiers. So... Um, <laughs> Yeah, that, that's where my I didn't re, I didn't even know it was rated R until I I bought it on iTunes. I'm like, wow, it's it's rated R. There's curse words and stuff. Cool. <laughs> I, it's funny that you say that because I I mentioned the other day I said I'm doing this movie from 1991, Toy Soldiers, and I made the mistake of saying it's obscure, and apparently it's not obscure. I was way off because so many people just said what you just said. Oh, I watched that movie on TV so many times growing up. So apparently I'm the only person this movie is obscure to. Well, the thing is, I, I think you're a couple of years older than me or, or so, because I'll, I'll be 44 this year. And so this movie came out in 91 when I was in like high – just in the big freshman year of high school or whatever. So, um, I mean, if you were in college in the early 90s, you probably missed this movie uh, mostly because it was it, – it wasn't obscure. It was obscure, but there were better movies coming out at that point um, than Toy Soldiers and, I mean – it, it it would make sense that like people of my that are because we're close to the same age, but we're just far enough apart where um, you might have missed this when everybody my age was still stuck at home and not out doing, you know, important things like partying and picking up chicks. <laughs> I love that you have that kind of faith that you think I was doing that. I, I'm trying to give you I'm trying to make you look a little better, I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, okay, well, this movie came out in 1991. Again, I was 17, so I'm, a, I'm just a little older than you. Okay. Which is funny because I was totally watching tons of movies at this point, and I watched, like, everything. So I don't know how I missed Toy Soldiers other than 
it looks like it might have been a little young for me. Like in 91, I was trying to get into the real hardcore stuff. This might have felt a little young for me. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely, you know, it's it's a more grown-up uh, Ernest Goes to Camp, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and without the uh, cultural appropriation of the Native American tribes. Well, yes, but we do have Will Wheaton culturally appropriating my Italian people. Yeah, you know, it's funny watching a kid from Burbank uh, trying to – trying to put on a Brooklyn accent. I mean, to prepare for the episode, I actually have a bottle of mouthwash or alcohol uh, disguised as mouthwash. On the other hand, I have my Will Wheaton's Guide to Inconsistent New York Accents in my other hand, so uh, <laughs> I'm ready to go. That was one of his bestsellers, if I remember. Oh, yes. It was right there with the uh, – I don't know what other books he wrote. He's he's written a few books. I just never read them because he's Will Wheaton, and I'll never forgive him for uh, Star Trek. Oh yeah, okay. Okay, for for you guys who don't know this movie, yeah, it's uh, stars Sean Astin and Will Wheaton, and Sean Astin was trying to move out of his Goonies phase and was trying to be taken more serious. He is a grown-up actor, and he really bulked up for this role. He's much bulkier. He does stunts. He gets to run around. He gets to do lots of fun stuff. He's not Mikey from the Goonies anymore. No, he's not stuttering. He's he's more Brand than Mikey. Yeah. Yeah, he's more Brand. But then the other one is Will Wheaton who is desperately trying to move away from Stand By Me in these dork roles, and he plays, and I shit you not, Will Wheaton <laughs> plays the street-hardened, tough son of a mafia boss with a thick New York accent. Uh, only occasionally. <laughs> only occasionally. It's almost, all right, on the, on the scale of bad accents, it's not as bad as Kevin Costner in uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, but it's, it's up there. And I will tell you that specifically that's why I first heard about this movie, because you know who Bill Simmons is, right? Oh, of course. Yeah, Bill Simmons would always write back on his uh, ESPN stuff, movies that he loves that nobody else loves. And this was one of his favorites. And he specifically wrote, because it's a fun movie, it's well done, you know, it's action-packed, but you have to laugh at Will Wheaton trying to pull off this tough New York accent that he thought was the greatest thing ever. So that's how I was first turned on to this movie because of the uh, Will Wheaton accent inconsistency. Yeah, I follow one of his uh, – I don't know if he writes for The Ringer anymore, but this guy, Shea Serrano, he did a, a book called Movies and Other Things and just a bunch of essays. He did some essays on Scrubs and a PDF book and things like that. And – uh on Twitter, just like last week or the week before, he was doing a thread on watching Toy Soldiers because, I mean, he went from that to Encino Man, so he must have been on a Sean Astin kick. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny. I have a lot of sympathy for Sean Astin because, you know, he's coming off the Goonies, and he's a little dude. And, like, you knew he was going to have a hard time getting these grown-up adult roles. And to his credit, he got Rudy. So <laughs> there's a, hey, we need a, a short, annoying guy to play this football player, Sean Astin. So. You know, and he and he came from, you know, I don't want to say it was Hollywood royalty, but pretty close. I mean, his dad was Gomez Adams and his mom was Patty Duke. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he was already like already going to be scrutinized because of who he was. So, you know, Goonies is one thing. Toy Soldiers is another. But then Rudy sort of put him on the map finally as a different actor than the little kid. And then he plays a little uh creature a hobbit which really well you know he bulked up for that role too <laughs> well it is funny sean astin's got so many things he did over the years like he's a big part of you know people our age of things that he did it was a big part of our pop culture but it's funny that like nowadays most people only know him from like stranger things yeah i know yeah he's that guy from stranger things wait 
that's uh, that's Samwise Gamgee. We're like, no, no, that's Mikey from the Goonies. <laughs> yeah, but I think Sean Astin is really good in this. And again, I have a lot of sympathy for him because I knew he was going to have a hard time adjusting into these more grown-up roles. But to get back to Will Wheaton here. <laughs> now, Will Wheaton, probably a very great guy in real life. I've always heard good things about him. I know he's like the ultimate nerd. He always shows up in like nerd, like trivia things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that he thought he could pull off this role. I, I I wonder if it wasn't just him, but it might have been people pushing him because I mean we could be we could be busting on him when he was like sort of being forced to to act by his parents at some point. But I don't know how old he was at this point. Um, and it, I I don't I don't know exactly how old he is. So, uh, yeah, I heard that when he was doing Stand by Me, he was really having a hard time because his parents were sort of forcing him to act, or his mom was forcing him to be a, an actor, and he didn't really want to. So. For all we know, this was the the role that like put him over the edge because I don't think he did much acting after that for a long time. Now I feel bad. Should we not be ripping on him here? Oh no 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 no! It doesn't. It does not forgive him for the uh, terrible Brooklyn accent that he should not have even attempted if he couldn't do it. I don't think he even had a dialect coach. I think he watched like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what he would have watched to prepare for that at that point. But I don't think he had anybody working with him on the accent he was just let's just try it out and it, it failed horribly <laughs> hey fuck you i'm will wheaton i'm will wheaton i i ruined the first two seasons of the new star trek <laughs> okay so let's sum this up to people put this into the bigger picture so this movie officially is where the goonies teams up and joins forces with stand by me for the first time ever Yes, with a little adventures in babysitting thrown in for good measure. <laughs> yes. And just to complete the picture, I think I read somewhere on the Internet Movie Database that Corey Feldman auditioned for this movie and did not get it. And can you imagine if we would brought it all together with a little Feldman? If there was a Feldman in this, I, I don't know who he would have played because, honestly, I think Corey Feldman would have been better in the Will Wheaton role and then uh, maybe throw Will Wheaton in the uh, – what is his name? Coogan, I think is his last name. The actor that played uh, mm -hmm. that was in Adventures in Babysitting and Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Um, that guy had a really bad track record with babysitters, by the way. But um, I think <laughs> I think Feldman would have been great in as Will Wheaton as the hardened uh, son of a mobster, mob boss. And I think he probably would have been just a little bit shorter than Sean Astin. Well, that's what you want. You want your action lead to be the biggest guy in the movie. So that actually would have helped Astin quite a bit. Yeah, because you're watching, it and Will Wheaton's towering over this guy. <laughs> well, he is the tough son of a mob boss, so you have to fear him. By the way, and the mob boss, well, we'll get to it, I'm sure. The mob, we'll get to the mob boss later. Okay. You know, I was just thinking what would have really put this movie over the top is to have Corey Feldman in it, but keep Wheaton and Aston, but you want Corey Feldman as Hank, the black guy. And so you have Feldman during his embarrassing phase right now in full blackface in a movie. That really would have put this movie over the top. He would have been a dude disguised as another dude playing a dude. <laughs> that, that, that'd be perfect. This would be the greatest movie ever. Uh, yeah, I think Robert Downey Jr. would have seen that and maybe questioned whether he should have done Tropic Thunder. <laughs> <laughs> and so on this timeline, Corey Feldman eventually becomes Iron Man. Oh, my God. And, and does Corey Hames still live at this point or River Phoenix? Any of them? I don't know. Was was River Phoenix dead by the time this movie was made? Oh, that's a good question. He died somewhere in the 90s. I don't remember. I don't know. <laughs> I, 
I don't remember either. I meant to look that up because River Phoenix was another guy that if he was still alive would have been great in this movie. Of course, he was great in anything he was in. So you could put River Phoenix as the son of the mafia boss as Will Wheaton. And now you move Will Wheaton to play the Colombian terrorist. <laughs> and then he, there we are with a bad accent again. <laughs> <laughs> Will Wheaton trying to pull off a Colombian accent. But then he goes, slips into Russian or something. Wait, I thought we were playing Red Dawn. <laughs> yes. Will Wheaton knows so many accents. He's basically Meryl Streep. He, he <laughs> with no effort at all, slips in and out of accents. Yes. It's it's like it's like he was born there. <laughs> Very good. That was good. Okay. I, I, again, I really hope you guys have seen this movie. Otherwise, none of these jokes will be landing because we're we're just talking about the plot and the characters already. Yeah, you know that I found out when I was doing some research for this. This is based on a book by uh, by a guy named William Kennedy P. Kennedy, and instead of Colombians, it's a Palestinian terrorist group that takes over the school. Uh, and that's that's all I've seen. I actually got it on, on loan from the library. I'm going to see what it's like if I can even get through the book. Well, I am curious. Now, this movie gets compared to Red Dawn a lot, with Red Dawn obviously being the bigger movie, the better known movie. But they are similar where, you know, terrorists come and take over a school or an area, small town, and the kids have to fight back. Right. I don't think this would have played well now after, you know, th stuff like Columbine because you got machine guns in schools and stuff and uh, people dying in the school. Someone gets shot uh, at some point. One of the students gets shot in the school. Uh, I don't know if it, they could even make this movie today. That is a good point. It was the golden age of school shootings back in 1991 being portrayed in movies. Yeah, there was no school shootings back then that I remember. Uh, I think the first real one, real major ones were in like, five six years after this not inspired by toy soldiers i'm sure <laughs> once again will wheaton leads to darkness in our country there you go he's will wheaton in a trench coat <laughs> okay so uh the other thing i i wanted to point out about this movie is uh a comment my wife made the other day as we were watching this movie i hadn't seen it in quite a while and we're watching it and and my wife's like you know, this movie's basically if, you know, crap went down during dead poet society and the kids had to fight back and that i thought that was a great comparison yeah, that terrorist looks like a sweaty-toothed madman. <laughs> Just dropping little gems all over me on here on this one. What about William Keating? What what <laughs> would he improv his way into you know death, or would he be keeping the kids entertained like uh like that that uh, Italian guy in that movie uh of during the Holocaust? <laughs> I can't think of the name of it right now. Life is beautiful. Yeah, life is beautiful. Maybe he's like the Italian guy and life is beautiful, keeping it, keeping the kids entertained while everybody's getting murdered around him. <laughs> so it's a much darker Dead Poet Society. Yeah, it's it's almost as good as uh, – what was that – you will know this, that SNL parody. Mr. Bunting. Farewell, Mr. Bunting. Oh, it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen on TV. Yeah, I'm not going to ruin the joke, but if you have never seen the SNL parody, Farewell, Mr. Bunting, Google it right now and read nothing about it before you watch it. It's one of the funniest things you'll ever see. I, yeah, I've watched it maybe a handful of times. I'm crying every time. I'm just laughing so hard. <laughs> that and the uh, – that now, completely unrelated, speaking of good accents because he's from there, Casey Affleck at Dunkin' Donuts, another one of my favorite uh, uh, modern uh, – SNL sketches. Yeah, that was good. Another one, uh, and more SNL tr uh, fun for you. Yeah, Google Casey Affleck SNL Dunkin' Donuts, where it's uh, the uh, Southies from Boston trying to sell Dunkin' Donuts to people. 
Oh, I love it. He's standing there with this. I've seen those guys with the hand out with the cigarette outside the door. He goes, you got to go outside with that. I am outside, Mark. <laughs> okay, let's steer this back to our actual movie here. Yes. Let's get into the plot of Toy Soldiers. Are you all ready, Jeremy? I'm ready to go. Okay, so this movie opens with a uh, a uh, an assault on a courthouse. I kind of forgot about this. We get the the Columbia assault with uh with this guy. What's the character's name? Uh, Luis Cali. Yes, Luis Cali. His dad is Enrique Cali. Okay, so explain the opening scene to people where Luis Cali goes madass on a on a uh, courthouse in Colombia. Oh, so basically, okay, this uh, assumes that Colombian courts are not corrupt. First of all, <laughs> uh, it opens up. It there's a there's it's a courthouse that's being taken over by a bunch of terrorists led by Enrique Cali. And or not Enrique, Luis Cali, uh, and he is trying to find out where his father is because his father is apparently like this huge, similar to uh, to Will Wheaton's character. His father is a, a high up like Colombian drug cartel boss, and uh, he's been extradited to the United States. Apparently, he didn't have enough money to bribe his way out of it this time, and so they uh, the judge is like, he's not here. He's been given over to the United States government and uh, he ends up getting tossed out of a helicopter. It was, it was wonderful. It was a great way to start a movie. Yeah. So this guy, Callie, he's a bad dude. He storms into this uh, courthouse in Columbia, kills the judge. And we learned from the start of the movie, this guy's a bad dude. You don't want to cross him, but it turns out his dad, he's trying to free from a prison is not in Columbia. His dad's in America. So this guy, Luis Callie has been foiled with his first uh, jailbreak and now we're going to go to the U.S., and now we're going to get the plot of the movie as we go to the Regis School in New York. Yeah, is it New York? I never found out exactly where it was, but New York makes sense. They never do say it. It might be New Jersey. It seems like Westchester area uh, if it's New York, but um, it's definitely not where I live in New York. It's it's much nicer, um, but it's it might be Westchester, New York, uh, which is you know where the X-Men live. So Will Wheaton was just in the wrong movie. That's the one he should have been in. Yes, yes. He he. I don't even know what X Men he would play. Uh, he he would definitely not be playing Colossus because I don't think he could pull off the Russian accent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who's the one that has the most complicated accent? That's who Will Wheaton would be. <laughs> He's gonna be Nightcrawler with a German <laughs> accent. <laughs> is there someone who speaks fluent Japanese with a really authentic accent? Uh, I'm sure there is. I can't think of it right now. I mean. Wolverine speaks Japanese, but uh, he's too tall to be Wolverine. Okay, so the Regis School is, uh, we will learn later, basically uh, a second chance school for rich prep kids. Rich kids have been thrown out of other schools, and this is like their follow-up school where the last chance before they get sent back to public school. Yeah, or uh, or the uh, reformatory. <laughs> yeah, one of the two. Yeah, you, you, get, you can't really choose at that point. So our stars of the movie, there's basically six kids that are kind of the troublemakers at this prep school, and uh, we'll get to them in a second. But the leader of them is named Billy Tepper, who is played by Sean Astin. Yeah, and uh, it, 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 right as you first meet him, he's spray-painting the word rejects over Regis to indicate that this is a school full of bad boys. <laughs> yes, they're like made-for-TV bad boys. Yeah, they're like Ricky Schroeder in the movie where he played a bad boy that had to go into the reformatory school. I don't know why I remember that, but it was a bad TV movie in like 1987. 
And you know they're bad because at one point Sean Astin actually drops an F word. So he's 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 a troublemaker. Yeah, he's he's a troubled he's a troubled kid. He's he's just been through a lot. And again, I should point out this movie is a good five years after the Goonies. And so it's funny, I was making a joke the other day when we were watching it. I told my wife, oh, Sean Astin's still playing a teenager, huh? But I actually did the math in my head. Like in the Goonies, he's 12. In this, he's 17 or 18. So he actually is playing his correct age. Right. And so is Will Wheaton and uh, Louis Gossett Jr. <laughs> he's playing his own age? That's impressive. Of course. Okay, so the start of the movie is uh, this is uh, Billy, this is Sean Astin and his best friend, Joseph Trotta, the son of a mafia boss played by Will Wheaton. And apparently there's a third guy named Phil. These are like the big three roommates. Yeah, yeah. Phil is the son of a judge who's in charge of the Enrique Kelly case. <laughs> yeah, so if you can put two and two together here, basically uh, there's this uh, Colombian drug lord who wants his father out of prison. The American judge who is keeping his father in prison, uh, his son goes to the school. So we have security right at the start of the movie pulling this kid out saying, uh, your dad is going to be targeted by these Columbia drug lords. So we got to pull you out of the school right now for your own safety. Right. And uh, and they're, they, they're trying to do this in private. And meanwhile, Will Wheaton and uh, Sean Astin are uh, doing some sort of human pyramid thing to listen in through the window, uh, which is not fooling anyone. That's how you know they're bad boys, because they eavesdrops on conversations. Yes, yes. I think at one point he was – Sean Astin was standing on Will Wheaton's back or something. I, I don't remember. I, I, I don't remember exactly what they were doing, but uh, yeah, they couldn't just you know stand close to the window or the door because the window's open and they could hear it. They had to do this complicated cheerleader thing to, <laughs> to eavesdrop. You do have to remember, that's how Ted Bundy got started. He eavesdropped on conversations. It makes sense. <laughs> it's a pathway, pathway to evil. Yes, it's a it's a, a school to serial killer pipeline. Now, what's funny, I don't talk about this much on Staffix, but I actually have a little bit of a connection to this movie, strangely enough. My brother is a federal judge. Oh, yeah? And I have actually, yeah, I have actually had instances where people who are mad at his rulings will yell at me and come after me on social media. That's crazy. They can figure out that he's your brother? Yeah, because it says on his Wikipedia page. Oh. <laughs> uh. yeah, yeah, there's this jackass Mario Lanza who hosts podcasts. He's the brother of this judge. So do you have to protect everything you say, hoping you're not embarrassing him? Not really, no. Perfect. <laughs> but we do have to warn people. Like, if people come and yell at me and, and come after me on social media, I have to tell them this is a horrible idea to intimidate a family member of a federal judge, so knock it off. So this is actually something I've dealt with. Wow, look at you. You're it's it's like you're in the movie. I am. I'm Phil. I'm Phil Donahue. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Phil Donahue. I hope that's not his name in the movie, is it? That indeed is his name if you listen to it. It's Phil Donahue. Perfect. We're naming him after a, a popular seventies and eighties television talk show host. <laughs> So anyway, in the movie, Phil, the son of the federal judge, gets yanked out of the school for his own security. And uh, this will come in handy because in a day the terrorists are going to come storm the school looking for this kid. And we'll get to that. Yeah. And, and well, you did see also them tormenting the Barney Fife security guard uh, as they're running in where they take his uh, his nightstick and start throwing it around. And he's like, come on, guys, come on. And finally they give it to him so that, 
you know, once the spray painting is done. The front line of security at the Regis School, the old man with a with a nightstick. Yeah, he has one bullet for his gun in his uh, his left chest pocket. Okay, so let's talk about some side characters here. So this guy, Phil, gets yanked out of school because his dad's a judge. Let's talk about the dean for a minute because he's actually uh, significant to the plot. This is Louis Gossett Jr. coming off. Very acclaimed role in An Officer and a Gentleman. He was in... Uh, Iron Eagle, some other stuff. But now he's doing Toy Soldiers, and he's actually pretty good in this movie. Yeah, he's a great actor. Um, he was in a movie with Dennis Quaid in the mid-'80s, a sci-fi movie where he was all in makeup. He played an alien. I think it was uh, Enemy Mine was the name of it, mm -hmm. and it was really, really good. Um, for sci As far as sci-fi movies goes, uh, he's he's great in it. And, uh, you know, I honestly – that's these are the only movies I remember Louis Gossett Jr. being in. I don't know what else he's done since then. Yeah, and it's a shame because he was a really well, you know, well acclaimed actor and people loved him and he didn't do a whole lot that I remember either. Yeah, unfortunately. But he does show up here and he is good in this as the dean of the school. He's in charge of discipline and security and keeping alcohol out of the dorms. He's he's basically the dean of students and then there's the principal. I don't know what the power structure is at this particular school because there's him and then there's the old guy from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, let's talk about him for a minute. This is uh, Denholm Elliott, who is uh, Marcus Brody from Indiana Jones movies. And he is just as effective here as he is in the Indiana Jones movies. He has no power whatsoever and everything's about two steps ahead of him. Yeah, I mean, he seems like a wise old man, but with uh, very little clue as to what's going on. A perfect role for him. Yes. Okay, so the dean of the school, again, this is Louis Gossett Jr. He is on top of Sean Astin, on top of Billy. And he's like, I'm on top of your schemes. I know you're the one spray painting. You're on probation. I know you sneak out of the campus. And they'll have a very interesting relationship, almost like a father and son throughout this movie. And I think that's that was the goal, was to kind of build that bond between them, where he has a respect for Billy because he's very intelligent, but he wants to get him on the straight and narrow. Yeah, no more eavesdropping through windows. Right. Okay, so with that with that being said, we've introduced ourselves to the main characters. Now let's go to Billy's little posse of ne'er-do-wells. Uh, this is the underground party scene. Oh, yes, the underground party scene where they sneak into – well, first of all, they're in their room, and they communicate by banging on the radiators, which, uh, which I think is similar to how people in prisons communicate. I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah, so Billy has a little system. He bangs on his radiator. All his friends know the symbol. and That that means they know to sneak out of their rooms and gather because they're going to go drink alcohol now. Yes, and they sneak into the secret room behind the basement. They have to climb through a hobbit hole to get to it, um, which was appropriate. <laughs> um, and, and, they, and Billy has devised this uh, phone uh, hacking scheme that he uh, attaches to the phone line to call one of those uh, dirty phone numbers that were so popular in the late 80s, early 90s, before there was the Internet. Yeah, and these things were not unknown. This, uh, this device that he has basically can tap into any long-distance line. You can get long-distance calls for free. If people know much about the technology of that era, like uh, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, that Wozniak created these things at Berkeley, and he made a lot of money selling them to get around phone lines. So this is historically accurate. I didn't. I had no idea, honestly. I didn't get in that sort of trouble when I was younger. But 
But yeah, I thought he built it out of stuff from Radio Shack, which, you know, for you kids, that was a store where you went when you needed any kind of cable. They had it. Yeah, and Billy knew this. So Billy is a smart kid. He's figured out this device to get free long distance. And so basically all the kids in the uh, Regis school sneak downstairs under the secret room and they uh, use the phone thing to dial phone sex, which was a thing. Yeah, Jeremy can verify that was a thing back in the 90s, the phone sex lines. Yeah, I remember watching an expose on it on uh, on I think it was might have been a current affair, and uh, they talked about the women really behind those uh, those phone lines and and it was really funny because they were talking and you could see oh yeah these these women sound quite uh, attractive and then they round the corner to this cubicle and the woman looks a bit like Roseanne Barr. <laughs> it was pretty awesome. Do you know? Now I'm going to pull a shot in the dark here. Do you know? Uh, back in the eighties, there was a famous wrestler named Queen Kong. Yes. Queen Kong from, uh, the glow from Gl gorgeous ladies of wrestling. I read somewhere that she was a huge phone sex line that she made a lot of money as a phone sex operator. It wouldn't surprise me. Uh, because the thing is like, if you have a nice voice, that's all that matters. Theater of the mind. You know, when you meet the, your mm -hmm. favorite radio host and find out they look like somebody completely different. Uh, it, it messes with your head. So, uh, you know, they, they like to play with the theater of the mind, I guess. Yeah. Queen Kong for people who do not know her is about six two, about three fifty, just a monster. But yeah, apparently I remember reading somewhere that she and her husband just were, were like phone sex pioneers in California. Yeah, there was her. And then there was a uh, Mount Fuji was a, was a, a large Samoan woman. I don't know if she was involved in phone sex. No, but I'm uh, just thinking of all the glow characters that were out there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so back to our party here. So these kids gather in the basement. It's like underneath the, the cafeteria. And they all sit there and do phone sex using the school's long distance to pay for it. And this is the thing that everyone else tends to remember about this movie, the mouthwash alcohol. Yeah, he – now, Billy, of course, the genius among them all. Uh, figures out how to make mouth or liquor look like mouthwash. So it's vodka, creme de menthe, and I don't remember what the other part was uh, to to create this alcohol that looks just like Scope. Yeah, they just put in mouthwash and in a mouthwash container, and Billy sells it to people. And Billy apparently makes a lot of coin doing this around school. Well, I did the math. He sold thirty-five bottles of that, or I'm sorry, eight bottles of that for thirty-five bucks. And so it ended up being – or however many it was, ended up being like three, almost $300 he made uh, off of selling uh, that. <laughs> He's got a little bootlegging operation. Of course, he is rooming with the, with the guy from the mob, so maybe he helped him figure out the bootlegging operation pretty easily. <laughs> well, also these are all theoretically the children of the richest people in America. So you think they'd have a lot of money floating around to begin with. Yeah, I mean and, and he just wants more. You know, you, you never have enough money. He, wow, he is Mikey. He's always after that rich stuff. There you go. We need Chunk in this movie. Why isn't he in this movie? Yeah, where was – I think Chunk was at Berkeley at this point. Yeah, he was president of the uh, student body and all that. And he wasn't Chunk anymore. He was slim. Yeah, I have to point that out to people that may not know that. So the Goonies all scattered to the wind after their movie in 1986. And the most famous or the most successful one was probably Chunk who went to Berkeley, UC Berkeley in California, ran for student body president, and his, his election slogan was basically, vote for Chunk. So he steered right into it, and they all voted for him. You know, I saw an interesting thing after, uh, what was the director's name, the director of Goonies, 
Richard Donner. Richard Donner. Richard, Richard Donner. Donner. Yeah, he became really good friends with Richard Donner and uh, he and his mom because I guess his mom was he was a single parent. And they were talking about how he wanted to go to college, but he didn't know if he could afford it. And Richard Donner cut him a check every year and covered his tuition for college because wow. he thought the kid had a lot of potential. And clearly the kid, you know, did. And he's now like a very successful entertainment lawyer. Yeah, I'm friends with him on Facebook. He seems like a really cool dude who is not embarrassed of being chunk in the slightest. He loves it. That's great. He could do the truffle shuffle with his abs. <laughs> So did his mom make friends with Richard Donner by bringing him a big pizza at the end? I, I have no idea. <laughs> okay, let's get back to our friends here, the five kids in this movie. Again, there were six originally, but Phil, the judge's son, got yanked. So now it's just the five, and they don't have a cool nickname like the, you know, the, the, the animals or anything or the gophers, but they're just these five kids. Let, let's talk about these five kids. Okay, so we've talked about Joey Trotta. Let's talk about Snuffy Bradbury, played by uh, Keith Coogan. He's sort of the uh, the goofball of the bunch. Yeah, Keith Coogan, uh, kind of the, one of these guys floating around at that time as an actor. I don't know if he did too many things people would know other than adventures and babysitting. And what was the other one? Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Yeah, he, he was in that movie with uh, Christina Applegate. Uh, that was the, but I don't know what else he did. I think he, now he he doesn't really work as an actor, but he's an acting coach, uh, for the most part. So, uh, but you'd recognize him if you've seen those movies. They, I, you know, at least once or twice. I, I've seen him dozens of times. So, yeah, his character name in the movie is Snuffy, which is ridiculous, and I don't think they actually mention that in the movie. It's only in the credits. Yeah, I know. I I don't even know if they do. They mention his name as Bradbury or something. I don't. I don't know where they came up with the name. It's it's a little odd. There's one point I just noticed it today during my final notes where the terrorists are calling out the kids to see who they are and who their parents are. And they do mention something Bradbury. So they actually do name him there, but not Snuffy. Yeah, not Snuffy. It must be a nickname. I, I'm sure it's not his uh, good Christian name, Snuffy Bradbury. <laughs> He's not named after a famous saint, Saint Snuffy. Saint Snuffy, the uh, the patron saint of Kleenex, <laughs> or imaginary friends. There you go. That's the joke I was waiting for. Yeah, there we go. All right, so Snuffy is the uh, comic relief of the group, and he smokes and has asthma simultaneously, which is fun. And they will both actually come into play later in the movie. Yeah, he's the king of poor choices. <laughs> yes. So we have Billy, we have Joey Trotta, we have Snuffy. Then we have the black kid, Hank, who's like the jock. Yeah. And then some other fifth kid. Yeah, Ricardo Montoya. He's he's important because he understands and speaks Spanish. Just a little. Just a little. Yeah, just a little. <laughs> I saved a kid okay. from getting shot, but he understands just a little. Yeah, so these are the five kids, and they meet down here in their little party room, and they drink their mouthwash alcohol. And uh, they it gets broken up because the dean notices that his phone line is on upstairs in his office. He's like, oh, my God, are these kids using our long distance to get phone sex? And, Re and Louis Gossett Jr. tracks them down and busts their party. Yeah, he's got to be some sort of, like, ninja to figure out, like, where to go to find them, to track them down. He, or maybe he's caught them down there before uh, or heard talk of it before. Well, it's said later in the movie he used to go down in this room when he was a student here. Oh, okay. See, I forgot that line. There you go. Yeah, so he comes down and busts up their party and uh, calls them all out, and they all try to hide, but he knows. I know it's Billy. I know it's Trotta. I know it's all you. And they come out, and they're like, sorry, we're listening to phone sex during your Black Panther party. 
<laughs> I think I ruined my roommate's bathrobe. <laughs> that was good. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so he busts up the party and kicks them all out and says, you guys shouldn't be doing this. There should be no alcohol in my school. And he specifically pulls Billy aside because Billy has potential. And he, this is where we learn a lot about Billy's past. Yeah, this was uh, uh, all uh, all just to uh, to talk about how Billy's been through four schools or three schools. This is his last chance and yada, yada, yada. But he's not going to give up on, until you graduate. <laughs> yeah. So, so he has the option to kick Billy out of school for selling alcohol and being a bad influence, but he's not going to do it because he knows he needs discipline. So basically, yeah, he just puts Billy on pots and pans for the rest of the semester, and Billy's pissed. Honestly, pots and pans are not that bad. Like of of the list of punishments you can go through, I'm sure pots and pans is not nearly as bad as other things. But I mean, I would I would rather do pots and pans than be on I don't know uh, grounds crew. But he gets mad. Well, yeah, because it's not only is Billy put on pots and pans, but the dean also makes him go around school and buy back all the alcohol he sold to students. So he basically makes Billy look like a narc in front of everybody. Of course, and nothing's worse than looking like a narc when you're 17 years old. <laughs> yes. The lowest moment of Sean Astin's life here. Yes. It wasn't <laughs> okay. Encino Man, surprisingly enough. Okay, so, uh, and Billy's mad. He's been forced to buy back all the alcohol. He's been put on pots and pans. He's been humiliated. So immediately that night, he encourages his roommate, Joey Trotta, we must strike back and do another prank just to show that we can do it. Yeah, now this is the most unrealistic part of the movie. Now, why? How they would have pulled this off in one night. That is true, yeah. Well, it is Billy. Remember, Billy's a magician. Yes, Billy is very smart. And he, they're able to – how do they does, – does one of them have a photographic memory to know exactly how to lay things out just as they were when the dean left the night before? Uh, <laughs> I don't know how they do it, but they set it all out in the middle of the quad. They set up the, the, the dean's office completely – uh, as if it's in the office outside on the grounds. I think what happened, it's kind of a probably a deleted scene, is that Billy has a treasure map from One-Eyed Willie, and he folds it. And if you fold it, you can see how the dean's office is laid out. Oh, right. Or he's got like a stone key, and if you hold it up just right to the light, it'll cast everything into the right spots. Exactly. That's exactly how they did it. Yes. Sounds – that makes sense. Yeah, this movie is great. This is where every storyline from the 80s all comes together into one movie. It, it's like Revenge of the Nerds meets uh, Goonies meets Red Dawn. Everything just sort of converges at this point. <laughs> There's even a scene later, I have to point out, where the, uh, Snuffy and Joey Trotta get in a fight because one of them yells a racial slur at the other one. And then they have to skin their hands and make up like in Stand By Me. It's perfect. It, it, there's This is the kind of movie that if you haven't seen it, you're going to see everything that you want to see from an 80s movie in the space of two hours. Yeah, although the movie does lie to us because in Stand By Me, they said that Chris Chambers made the best piece. <laughs> well, let's see uh, where that got Chris Chambers. He got stabbed in a fried chicken restaurant, okay? <laughs> this scene, though, has the best line of the entire movie from Louis Gossett Jr. Is this the banana line? Yes, because... And and it was all improvised because Sean Astin apparently got a banana from catering. They called him over for the shot. So he's eating a banana. And when he throws the peel into the garbage can, Louis Gossett Jr. says, 
pick up that banana. <laughs> it's the best line of all time. Whenever there's like, I, whenever there's a conversation about less best line readings in the history of film, there's that. Even though it wasn't a line in the script, it was perfect. Pick up that banana. <laughs> Okay, we're goofing around. We're about to get to the heart of the movie now. So basically, it's been established. These five kids are troublemakers. Sean Astin is their leader. Louis Gossett Jr. is onto them at all times and, like, will not take their shit. And now the terrorists show up. Right, but you got to get Louis Gossett Jr. off grounds, which is what they did with the alcohol. Oh, that's right, yeah. Okay. And then they're right. stuck okay. there. He's the only guy who can really protect them outside of the dean and, and that the security guard was a joke. You know, so so they get him off grounds and the terrorists show up. Yeah. Now, these are professional terrorists. We've seen them earlier in the movie take out an entire courthouse of Colombians. And they basically storm the grounds here because they're here for Phil, the judge's son. And they shoot. Oh, no, Jeremy, the sh they shoot the poor security guard. They kill him. He can't even get the bullet or the gun out of his uh, out of the holster. They They get him like right away. So he's done like within like eight seconds like the one security guard they had is dead well this is why they say when you work in security you want redundancy so the school should not have had one old guy they should have had a second old guy yeah they should have had one guy that he could go uh he could be maybe sleeping in the back of the room and be like hey phil this 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 bus is coming up this van you see this van so he's awake and he could pull his gun out but no they didn't do that they only had the one guy he had one job and he failed Okay, so let's talk about these terrorists. Now, for kind of a goofy movie, they are legitimately kind of scary in this movie, led by uh, the main guy. I, I always forget his name. Do you know what, what was his name? Luis Kelly. Okay, yeah, Luis Kelly. Now, I didn't realize this because I haven't seen Red Dawn in forever. That's the same actor who plays the villain terrorist in Red Dawn. I was mistaken. I looked it up to verify after I said that because it must be one of those uh, – uh, Mandela effect things where I was sure it was the same guy. I was a hundred percent sure. And then I looked, I'm like, no, it's not. I was upset that myself that I lied to you unintentionally <laughs> about that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was our pre uh, note discussion where he said it's the same guy in red Dawn. So I have all my conversation ready for that, that he is just scuttled. So thank you. Well, no, you know what the thing is, this Andrew Devoff is the name of the guy. Okay, he's he's not uh, he's not Hispanic. I, I believe he's his mom is Venezuelan or something, but his dad is is Eastern European. Mm -hmm. He's uh, he's he's an actor that can play both. Like he played, I think, a Russian bad guy in uh, what's the name of the movie uh, Air Force One. But he he's made a made a living basically as a as a guy playing villains uh foreign villains even though i think he's an american of venezuelan and eastern european descent so that's why i got confused i was 100 percent sure that he was in red dawn and i was completely wrong so once again it's of someone playing not their ethnicity so he's an american playing a so he's basically in hispanic face for this movie yes uh i'm looking him up right now to see exactly uh, he was born in venezuela I was wrong. He was he's a Russian. He's Russian. OK, he's a Venezuela born Russian actor. So there you go. So he can play both. OK, he speaks Russian and he can speak Spanish. OK, we'll just cut out that entire 10 minute section of this podcast. I am this so podcast. sorry. 
So, okay, so here comes Callie and his men. And they're, again, they are a uh, paramilitary group. They have professional-looking anti-aircraft guns. They have rocket launchers. They storm the school. They kill the security guard, and they set up a perimeter with explosives and, like, heavy-duty artillery really quick. And, like, it's like these kids are like, oh, shit, this is not going to be cool. Yeah, it's sort of like it hits the fan really fast. Like, it doesn't take them long to take everything over. Yeah, they take it quick, especially when there's no security guard other than the old guy. Right. There's absolutely no one that can stop them. Even a kid runs out to uh, call 911, and a teacher finds him, and the teacher ends up getting killed. Yeah, but they have no idea that Will Wheaton here is the son of a mafia boss. Right, and he wants to get a machine gun. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about some of the interactions here that I find fun. So the terrorists storm the school. They're here for the judge's kid. The judge's kid is not here. He's already been whisked off into uh, into a safe house somewhere. So they're like, shit, we have all this intel. This kid's here, and there's, he's not even here. But then they realize this school houses some of the most richest families in America, all their sons. And they're like, well, we'll just keep these kids hostage instead. Right. They sort of like uh, call an audible on the field. They're like, we're, gonna, we're just going to take over this school and get as much money out of these kids as possible. There's a scene here where they pull out the, like a file on every kid and they're trying to look around to see who these kids are they're holding hostage. And like, oh my God, your dad's like the chair of the Republican Party. And like, your dad's the head of the, like the, the Federal Reserve. Yeah. And then like, they get to Will Wheaton. Your dad is uh, whatever Trotta, the whatever Mr. Trotta. And Will Wheaton kind of nods. They're like, holy shit, we got this, we got a lot of powerful kids here. But the big one, of course, is Will Wheaton. He's the big fish. Yeah, he's and he's like, we've done business with your dad. We respect your dad. And Will Wheaton drops the F-bomb on him. Yeah, like, yo, fuck my dad. <laughs> the street-hardened Will Wheaton. Well, because the problem is his dad always preferred the older brother, uh, John Cusack. <laughs> and he and And he was the invisible boy that summer. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, Will Wheaton wrote an essay, but his dad wouldn't read it. Yeah. His dad was too concerned about the uh, scouts being at the game for a uh, good old Denny Trotta. Yo, dad, I wrote a mafia essay. Fuck you for not reading it. <laughs> his oh, friends okay. weren't a thief and two Phoebes. He'd be okay. Okay. So, and again, just uh, the, the, to point out this movie ties a bunch of other movies together. There literally is a scene where the terrorists pull all the kids in school together and they play a game called Who is Your Daddy and What Does He Do? That's true. And then Luis Kelly complains of a headache and they say it's probably a tumor. And he goes, it's not a tumor. Wait, wrong accent. Yo, fuck your tumor. <laughs> Be quiet, Will Wheaton. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just telling you guys, this is a fun movie. I really hope if you've never seen it before, you will go track it down. Because again... It ties together so many other awesome movies. And it's really entertaining too. It's it's not a bad movie. It's not one of those so bad it's good movies. It's it's a fun movie that's entertaining and it gives you two hours of just enjoyment the entire time. And you know the action scenes are surprisingly suspenseful. Like it's really well done for what it is. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a scene, you know, a little bit later on where uh Aston is trying he has to get information to the outside and it's pretty compelling. And I got to say, in Sean Astin's defense, he really bulked up. He's, like, bulky in this movie. 
you can tell he does a lot of his own stunts. He does a lot of stuff you wouldn't think Sean Astin would be doing. So more power to him for like going full uh, stuntman on this movie. It's called Tom Cruise syndrome. <laughs> so in another timeline, he could have been Tom Cruise. He could have, but you know, maybe he got the offer to join Scientology early on, and he was like, "I'm good. <laughs> I'm already rich. I'm cool. I'm an Aston." All right, so here we go. So now the hostage situation arises, where uh, the the terrorists call to the outside and they talk to the FBI director, who I don't know this guy's name. I just know him as the Smuckers guy. Mason Adams. Yeah, I had to look him up, but he is the Smuckers guy. He's the director of the FBI. The kindest, sweetest man in the world is the director of the FBI. I, I was As I'm watching this movie, I'm saying it's a lot like The Rock, how they have to decide if, the, if the, someone on the inside will help them out or to send in the excursion to Napalm, the entire place. But it's funny because in one of them you have really tough FBI directors, and this one you have the Smuckers guy. <laughs> Yeah, it, I, I, I don't know how he got so high up being so kind. I mean, it's like Mr. Rogers leading the uh, FBI. Did you try hugging him? Now, for people who didn't grow up in the 80s or 90s, you might not know what we're talking about. They used to have these commercials for Smucker's Jam and Jelly, and they had the t kindly old grandpa voice doing the commercial like, Smucker's Strawberry Preserves and Jam are America's favorite. Spoon after spoon jar after jar with a name like smuckers it has to be good yeah it's it's just a nice a nice guy you want to sit on the porch and whittle wood with uh <laughs> i think he was actually in to tie him back to uh to encino man i think he was actually in encino man as the uh grandfather of the girl that uh paulie shore was into see now the grandfather that's a role i could buy him in yeah, not the deputy director of the FBI. <laughs> We're going to send in all the nukes and crush them. But first, let's toast some bread and have some jam. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was in Son-in-Law. <laughs> Wait, you said Encino Man. Now you're lying to me again. Tie him to Encino Man because Son-in-Law was, uh, was the other Pauly Shore movie in the 90s. You know, thank God Pauly Shore was not in this movie. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, my God. He would have gotten shot in the first scene. Why are you going to choke on me, buddy? <laughs> okay, so the terrorists have control of the Regis school, and the whole school is rigged with explosives. So if anybody comes near the campus, they will blow up the entire building. And worst of all, here's like the, the big plot twist in the movie. The main terrorist, Callie, has a detonator strapped to his wrist. So any point he can touch this red button and blow up the entire school. Yes, it's it's uh it's one of those common things they have in these movies like uh you know the there's got to be a bomb and there's got to be a trigger and there's got to be an easy way for the guy to trigger the bomb like speed if you go below 55 with him you make him mad he presses a button the whole school goes up so it's the same similar trope but uh it's an interesting one in that he's got the kill switch on his uh on his wrist and uh here's where we meet the rules of the terrorists basically all the kids in the school must assemble in the cafeteria every hour on the hour, and there's a head count. And then the rule is, if one kid is missing at any point during the head count, five kids get shot to, to uh, discourage runners. Yeah, uh, basically, uh, if you run, you're going to cost a bunch of people's lives, so don't run. It's, it's, it makes these kids afraid. 
But it also does rely a lot on the fact that these kids might actually like each other. Like, I'm saying if I was in high school, I wasn't real happy. If they'd told me, you run and five of these kids are off, I would have to think about it. I, You know, I, I would have to think, too. There, I might have five friends, but there's such a random selection. Mm-hmm. We might only lose one of them. That's the thing. So they were really relying on these kids liking each other. Right. <laughs> which is which is a hard assumption when this is the kid, the school for rejects and juvenile delinquents. Yeah, I mean, and, and I'm sure at least a few of them know how to handle a firearm. <laughs> Not Wheaton, but a few of them do. <laughs> Wait, Will Wheaton is the son of a mafia boss. Yeah, I'm sure Moose from uh, from Ernest Goes to Camp had a garage somewhere he could have used. <laughs> I wish he was in that movie. Okay, so these are the rules. The kids must obey. Every hour there's a head count. They can't go anywhere. Anybody who leaves the campus will be shot. Uh, what else? Uh, there's a, If they touch any wire, the whole school will explode. And this is really nice of the terrorists. If they follow the rules, they get to go out and have quad fun time every day. Yeah, thankfully the weather was nice. <laughs> yes. It's upstate New York. I mean, the weather's not always that nice. Okay, we'll talk about this more later, but when we get to the quad scenes, there's a scene of Denholm Elliott, the old headmaster, literally sitting the kids down and having circle time where they read a story. (laughs) I told you, maybe he's doing the Mr. Keating thing. (laughs) or He's doing Mr. Keating as the the life is beautiful guy. (laughs) Well, I think that's the point. He's trying to calm these kids down. I think it's just like it's silly as a prep school for teen troubled offenders that they have circle time where they sit crisscross applesauce and listen to a story. Yeah. And I wonder what that story was. <laughs> We're going to read animal farm today. <laughs> and you can tell Sean Aston is a bad boy. Cause he doesn't go to circle time. No, he doesn't. He's, he's too busy, you know, making sure that his uh, muscles are shown really well through the uh, tank top sleeves. <laughs> okay. So here we go. So all the kids are thrown into their dorm rooms for the first night. And this is where Will Wheaton and all the crowd is together and they discuss their options. And this is where we get to the scene you mentioned earlier where Will Wheaton decides what he wanted to do is steal a machine gun and start shredding these fuckers. Right. And and, and Snuffy, my new favorite name, Snuffy stands up and says, what is it with the mob guys and wanting the, wanting the machine guns? It's terrible. The slurs against us Italians. Yeah, well, and he drops the other slur, and uh, I, I, I won't, I won't utilize it here. But you know, he says, you know, I can call you this if I want to. You know, that would have been just as bad if we turned to Hank and said, I could call you the N word if I wanted to. <laughs> it would have been a totally different movie because Hank would have killed him. <laughs> yes. So, so yeah, this is where the scene, yeah, the Snuffy calls Will Wheaton. Uh, I'll say it. I'm Italian. I can say the word WAP. He calls him a WAP. Or no, no, he doesn't. WAP comes up. I forget. And anyway, it inv- yeah, it ends with them fighting, and then they have to make peace like Chris Chambers taught them. Yes, of course. They skinned it. Okay. But right from the start, they're in this room of this kid named Yogurt for some reason. And Yogurt's got a little RC control plane he has built, which will become very important to the plot later. Yeah, it's an RC plane with some sort of remote control chip, uh, and they're discussing how the chips work and things like that and how it might – Necess- might work the same as the switch on the on Enrico, um, not Enrique, Luis Cali's wrist. How it could be the same thing, and they're having a discussion about it, and uh, they come up with some sort of plan. Okay, yeah, there are two plans here. There's uh, Joey Trotta's, Will Wheaton's plan of shred these fuckers with a machine gun, 
which is vetoed. And then Billy's plan of, let's just get a lot of intel. We could look around, find out where all the terrorists are, where the guns are, where their placements are, and somehow pass it to the FBI, which is a much more sensible plan. Sensible, methodical, and might just work. It might just work. Although we go to the outside, there's all this cutting back and forth between in the school and outside the school. And we have uh, the, the dean, Louis Gossett Jr., talking to the Smuckers guy of the FBI agent. And the FBI agent's like, uh, well, are those kids going to be in danger in there? And uh, Lou Gossett's like, well, those kids are, are wild cards. They hate authority. So anything could happen. It's a powder keg. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the kind of thing where he, he's like, my guys are are tough enough to make it through. <laughs> you know, he's trusting these kids to do something on the inside. Although there is another variable here that I kind of forget when I don't watch this movie in a while, that that the dean and the FBI are terrified because the leader of the New Jersey mafia, his son is one of the hostages, and they're worried the mafia may step in and do something even scarier than the terrorists now. Right, so now they're dealing with uh, bad guys on both sides. <laughs> yes. It's a powder keg ready to blow. Just it, it's ready to go, ready to blow. All Louis Kelly has to do is hit that button on his wrist. Okay, so here we go with day one of the terrorist occupation of the Regis School. This is the kids gathering all the intel as a team, working together to try to put together all these notes. Right, and so they're figuring out who's stationed where, what they look like. All that other stuff, and they're basically asking questions of, of people who have brought the guys in the – because these guys aren't even leaving the towers, bringing them their lunch, their dinner, their coffee in a thermos, all that other stuff. And they're figuring out how many people are where and what they have weapon-wise. It's a very intelligent uh, approach to uh, trying to take these guys down. Yeah, and we learn overall there are 12 terrorists total, and the kids figure out their placement and their names and everything. Right, and they and they mark it in their uh, yearbook. On the yeah, there's a picture of the school campus. They just draw on the yearbook where the terrorists are. And apparently, Will Wheaton is an incredible artist because he's drawing out sketches of the of each terrorist so they can identify them based on their picture. <laughs> okay, I gotta point this out. Yeah, Will Wheaton is a fantastic artist. He's sketching all this stuff. When in the next scene, Billy will sneak out and give all this information to the FBI. He gives him like 500 sketches. How many damn sketches did Will Wheaton do in that one day? I He he must have been sketching like a madman. You know, it's no wonder his dad liked John Cusack more. Look, Ollie's a dreamer. He's a drawer. You know, we draw, drawing guys don't earn. <laughs> He's a storyteller. He's going to write books one day, like the one about Lardass Hogan. Yes, and, uh, and he's going to sometime write about his friends if he gets hard up for material. <laughs> I really hope you guys have seen Stand By Me so you're getting all these jokes. Yeah, it's 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 right up there. You know, I, I could just imagine, you know, they, if they did a voiceover uh, thing in this movie, you could have uh, have Sean Astin say, you know, I was 17 years old when I saw my first dead body. <laughs> yeah, because did he see a dead body in the Goonies? Well, he saw Chester Copperpot. Well, Chester Copperpot, but he was really just a skeleton. I mean, does that... I guess that would count, but I mean, I mean, Ray Brower was a clear body. I mean, he's a dead body. So if it's if uh, if Chester Copperpot doesn't count, then Will Wheaton would count in uh, in this movie. By so on the scale of hardship, uh, Gordy from Stand by Me had it much worse than Mikey from The Goonies. Oh yeah, absolutely. Gordy had it much worse. I mean, he had to deal with uh, f- with bullies with nicknames like Eyeball. 
Uh, okay, so back to our movie. <laughs> so, so the the good guys, the kids are gathering all this intel, and out on the outside you have uh, the parents. The parents are going ape shit because all their kids are hostage, and these are like the rich Karens that run the world. They're like, you storm in there and save my children, and the U.S. will not negotiate with terrorists, so they're kind of screwed. Yeah, and there's even the people who are like, my kid's there on a scholarship. <laughs> they're not a rich kid. I can't give them any money. I love it, the FBI briefing where the Smuckers guy turns to Louis Gossett and goes, did you realize the head of the New Jersey Mafia is in this room? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Louis Gossett's like, yeah, no kidding. He's, his son is at my school. Did that come up in the interview, you think? Uh, so what's your dad do? Uh, he's in waste management. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be a real shame if you didn't admit me to this school. Be a real shame if something happened to this building. <laughs> All right, so a lot of stuff is happening at once here. It's a really tense situation. And this is where uh, we get two things that will become part of the plot later. This is where Mr. Trotta, the the mob boss, starts saying, you know, we have connections with this guy in jail, Callie. Let's do something on our end and help him get him out of prison, help the, help this resolve this situation. And the other thing that comes up is this, the plan with the RC plane where Yogurt and Billy start to, to debating if they can swap out the chip with the detonator of the explosives. Right, and then eventually they they've got all this intel. They've got the they they've discussed the plane. They decide they have to get the plane somehow in the dean's office where Louise Kelly has sort of holed himself up to drink tea. <laughs> yes, because that's what they do. They drink tea. These evil madmen. I do love how he's sitting there and he hears the plane and he looks out and he's holding the teacup. I don't think his pinky's out though, so he doesn't he didn't pass the uh, Miss Manners quiz. <laughs> Okay, this is day two you're talking about. Let's talk about this. This is the the big jailbreak for Billy, where Billy's going to get all this intel they've gathered on all the terrorists and all their positions. He has to get it out to the FBI outside the perimeter of the school, but he needs to somehow do it without the guards seeing him and killing him and within the one-hour head count. So let's talk about this, the distraction, the whole chaos scene of Billy getting out of there. Right, so they, they, they decide to fly the plane because they're getting, they're getting yard time. You know, they're they're being allowed to go out. They've been good. So Yogurt decides to fly his plane and he's flying it around. And then, uh, you know, it's it's causing all sorts of disruption. And then uh, we didn't really mention this guy, but there's like this albino henchman that's working with. Uh, he's not really albino. He's a he's a white guy with gray hair and glasses. He makes him shut it off and then they take it to the dean's office. And that's how they get the plane to the dean's office. But they use that as a distraction. So Billy can make a run for it. Yeah, there's a lot of Sean Astin stunt work in this scene where, uh, yeah, they're doing the flying the plane, distracting all the guards. Denholm Elliott's doing his circle, his story time. And Sean Astin is just booking across this field trying to get out of the view of the guards. And, yeah, he's like sliding down hills, going through storm drains. Like it's, there's some, actually some good work here by Sean Astin. Yeah, I mean, he risked getting injured a few times. I mean, the the running itself, you know, through, like, wet grass is dangerous enough for me. <laughs> yeah, and all that, and the coach still wouldn't put him into at least one football game. I, You know, Rudy Rudy put in the work, man. He put in the work. Yeah, but it's a great scene of Sean Aston getting all this notebook of all this in, intel out to the FBI. But then when he gets there, there's a problem. The FBI will not let him go back into the school. It's too dangerous. Right, and and they don't realize that he has to go back. If he doesn't, then people are going to get killed. 
So he uh, he decides to escape and he does this really clever thing because they've got like this tent set up, this military tent set up, and he knocks two of the poles down to run out. So it falls on them like cartoon characters. Yeah. OK. So, yeah, Billy gets outside. Uh, he tells the dean, you know, I need to get back inside. They're going to kill five people if I don't get inside. The FBI says, no, we can't do that. It's too dangerous. But the dean overrides the FBI and says, yeah, you can go. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that shows how much power Mr. Smuckers has. <laughs> is Arlie Ermey in this scene yet, the uh, Marine guy? He has been popping in and out of this movie. Yeah, he's the leader of the Marines. He's from, what, Full Metal Jacket? Yes, Full Metal Jacket was really where he made his mark because he was at a literal drill sergeant, and he played one on the mo- in the movie as well. Okay, yeah, there's a whole crew of FBI people and Marines that won't let Billy back, but Billy escapes them and steals a Humvee. And so we get a good old racelet. And you ever thought you'd see uh, Sean Astin in a Humvee action scene, but here you go. I didn't even think you could see over the steering wheel. I was kind of shocked. <laughs> well, maybe they did like short round in Indiana Jones. You put wood blocks on his shoes so he can touch the uh, gas pedal. Or or maybe there was an extra phone book or something laying around because, you know, they needed phone books back then. Yeah, so Sean Astin outraces the uh, military. They all try to chase him, but he outmaneuvers them because he's a bad boy. Yes, he he must have he must have been the wheelman for a couple of a uh, couple of heists back in the day. But yeah, this is a big long action scene. I don't have a whole lot of notes other than this is a fun scene where Billy outruns the military, sneaks back into school, uh, and it's a really tense scene because the the terrorists are doing a head count and they keep getting ninety one. They know that one kid is missing. And they're about to start the executions, and Sean Astin, like, at one point falls in the storm drain, so he's all wet. And he and he, he's able to get in, and he runs up. He, he strips all his clothes off, wraps himself in a towel, which smartly he kept in the window because they used that to break glass, and uh, claimed he was in the shower, which would not have passed muster if you've been the parent of any teenage boys. <laughs> But the terrorists buy. Yeah, Sean Astin sneaks in. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. I missed the uh, I missed the head count. I was in the shower. I'm just so stupid. And they, like, touch his hair. Oh, he's wet. And they pull out his folder. Oh, he has a history of taking showers, so I believe him. He's he's wet. He smells a little swampy, but uh, I, I believe you. I believe you were taking a shower. But it is a very tense scene, and five people almost get executed, but they don't. And But Sean Astin is going to pay for it by getting whipped. Okay, so what happened was you find out a little bit more about Luis Cali. He apparently went to a school similar to Regis when he was younger. His dad sent him because drug lords care about their kids' education and uh, sent him to this uh, this all-boys prep school. And uh, it was in, I think, Pennsylvania, and he talks about it. And he says the only way they learned discipline was by by getting whipped, basically. And he pulls out this metal, like, telescoping rod. I've never seen it before. It looks very, very uh, painful. And whips him multiple times on the back because that's what they do to teach them respect. That's right. That's probably what should have happened to Mikey at some point in the Goonies, too. Well, maybe that would have knocked the stutter out of him. <laughs> yeah, so. So, yeah, he is whipped by Callie, but while he is up in the office, Billy is able to get the lay of the land and look around. So he doesn't really mind that he's getting whipped because he sees there's a little grate in the ceiling you can sneak down. He sees that the, the RC plane is in the office. So the whole plan is formulating in his head what he's going to do when the, on the day of the FBI storming the castle. Yeah, he's, he's always working. He's always calculating his next move. He's a chess player. He doesn't play checkers. <laughs> 
Although I do love the point. It's it's implied in the movie. He's in the headmaster's office and he sees the grate in the ceiling. He's like, oh, I can pop in through there. But later in the movie, when they're climbing into the grate, he says, oh, I come in here all the time. This is how I steal answers. So it's like a little bit of a plot hole, I think. Yeah, just a little bit. I think maybe they just uh, it was hey, the director, not uh, and the script supervisor, not really paying attention because that would have easily been fixed by. Oh, wait, he says he comes in here all the time. Why would he look up at the vent? Yeah. Well, I guess it's for us, the audience. Yes, it's for us to know. OK, so here comes the big dilemma in the movie that Billy has passed this plan of all their escape plans out to the FBI and it basically involves him sneaking all the students down into that secret room where they had the party and switching out the chip and the explosive so he can't blow up the school, then the FBI is free to storm the place and, and kill all the terrorists. And uh, the FBI is going over the plan, and this is where they're debating. Would this kid Billy's plan actually work, or should we negotiate and just pay their ransom? Right, and uh, and meanwhile, you've got Trotta uh, getting word to the uh, to Enrique Cali that, you know, we we can get my kid out. Just get my kid out of there, and you can do whatever you want. Uh, I'll pay whatever you want to get my kid out. Yeah, this is a neat little plot twist that I kind of forgot is in here where the FBI is debating. Should we listen to this kid, Billy? Should we go with this, the, the biggest minds in the government that know how to storm terrorists? Or should we trust Billy? Yeah, let's trust the kid who stole a Jeep, uh, who knocked over a tent, who uh, who is, is known for making alcohol in his bathtub. You know, should we trust this kid or should we trust – uh, people who have been to West Point. <laughs> yes. But the dean, Louis Gossett Jr., there, is there and says, you know, Billy can do this. We can rely on that kid. He's smart. He has guts. He's a leader. And so this is the age-old dilemma of military intelligence versus Billy. Yeah, you know, and, and apparently, uh, apparently Louis Gossett Jr. is very, very convincing. <laughs> he is because nobody throws a banana in a garbage can in front of him. That's right. Pick up that banana. So, yeah, here's the plot twist you mentioned is while they're all in negotiations of trying to figure out what to do, this is where the mob boss, Trotta, what is what is his first name? I don't remember. He's played by he's played by uh, the same guy who played a cop in uh, um, well, in Law and Order, like the first few seasons of Law and Order. And I can't uh, I'm, I'm looking him up on IMDb. You might want to edit out my uh, my research. We really should know this off the top of our heads. We should. We should. Uh, Jerry Orbach. OK, so his dad is played by Jerry Orbach, who was famous for being on Law and Order for a number of years. So it was kind of hard for me after seeing Law and Order to take him seriously as a mob boss. And he was legitimately born in the Bronx. OK, so he earned the accent. Yes, he earned the accent. He should have he should have paintbrushed Will Wheaton until he had the accent right. But he didn't. Um, but rest in peace, Jerry Arbach. Yeah, speaking of rest in peace, we're about to meet the death scene of Will Wheaton. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and basically he negotiates with uh, Callie to let his son go, and he sends a message. Meanwhile, the other thing that, you know, I don't get what this is, but he's sending him letters through like some sort of – or not letters, but numbers through a radio with some sort of code that tells him messages – uh, from the father, Enrique, to Luis. So Lu he gets a message to Luis saying, let this Trotta kid go. He's from a friend, and he'll owe us a favor uh, if if we do this for him. Okay, yeah, let's set the stage for this scene. So 
the drug lord's father, Callie, has said release the mob boss's son, Trotta, because he's good people. We do business with the mafia. We like him. We trust him. And so basically word gets back to the school. Will Wheaton is free to go. And so he's called up to the headmaster's office, and Will Wheaton, of course, is all defiant and, and mafia-y. And he's like, I don't, I don't want to go. And the mob, and the terrorist is like, you're free to go. We like your father. He's a good man. And Will Wheaton busts out the great quote, yo, fuck my father and fuck you. I ain't going nowhere. Yeah, I didn't hear no bell. <laughs> so, so, Will Wheaton has been freed, but he refuses to go because he won't leave his friends in school. Right. And so he's as he's leaving, he's being guided out by a guy with a machine gun and he feigns as if he's going to be compliant uh, until it's just him and the guy with the machine gun. He elbows him, grabs the machine gun and goes for a run uh, to get outside with the machine gun. If you've ever wanted to see Will Wheaton defeat a hardened terrorist in hand to hand combat, here you go. Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Yes, this was this was his best battle, his best fight scene ever. I, I, in all of his movies and television shows, this was his best fight scene because he gets to like hit the guy over the head with the butt of the machine gun, and then he makes a run for it outside. Yeah, but Gordy's not going to get very far here, and uh, <laughs> because remember Gordy's plan earlier. I should be calling him Joey Trot. I will not. I will call him Gordy. No, he's Gordy. He's Gordy. So Gordy's plan earlier was to steal a gun and shred these fuckers. You know, and it would have worked if he had his lucky Yankees cap. <laughs> or if he knew the physics of how a machine gun worked. Yes, that was the other thing. Uh, as soon as he hits, squeezes the trigger, uh, it doesn't hit anything but air. And, and then the other guys who are professionals, they pretty much Swiss cheese him on the stairs. Yeah, so if you've ever wanted to see Will Wheaton gunned down by terrorists on stairs, this is the movie for you. He has a wonderful death scene where he doesn't know how the machine gun works. He shoots it straight up in the air. The terrorists shred him instead. And and Sean Astin is inconsolable, screaming and punching air as his friends hold him back as poor Will Wheaton is gunned down. Yes, this was the, uh, this was the uh, motivational moment for them. This is where they decide, okay, our friend's dead. Do we lie down and take it? Or do we fight back? <laughs> and Will Wheaton goes out with his final words. Yo, Billy, I'm dying here. <laughs> Tell my mom I love her. He turns into John Travolta, apparently. Well, you hit my hair. I worked a lot of time on that hair. You hit it. I'll never write that story. I swear. <laughs> so Will Wheaton has been killed. Yes, Will Wheaton is dead at this point. Which throws a lot of a monkey wrench into the plot because... Now the the mafia is pissed at the Colombians for killing their son. And so there's going to be retaliation for that. And in fact, the, when the dean comes up to collect Will Wheaton's body, he even tells the main uh, the terrorist, he's like, you're, you know, you're screwed now. You just killed the son of the leader of the mafia. They are going to come after you. So, like, it's all going to get real complicated now. Yeah, there is there is never uh, there's never not a reaction or a retaliation when you deal with the mob. At least that's what the movies have taught me. Yeah, and I'm Italian. I can back that up. Oh, okay. That's good to know. So uh, so basically, yeah, the mafia boss is mad. He's like, you know, Callie shot my son. They're saying it was an accident. It was no accident. We're going to kill his father. And so now it's going to get even more complicated. 
Right. And so they do. They, they, they cut to a prison. And for some reason, every prison I've ever seen in the movies is like three or four levels, a wall of cells. There's toilet paper being thrown that's lit on fire and people are yelling. And, uh, and Enrique Cali is walking through and there's people causing a ruckus because in prison, that's what you got to do is cause a ruckus. And, uh, uh, he bumps into another guy who, uh, casually just slits his throat and tosses him over the edge yes for those of you scoring along at home the terrorists occupy this regis school their only demand is this father callie get released from prison now the father has just been killed so there's literally no ransom they can pay so at this point every kid in that school is going to die and this is where the plot escalates because like oh crappy we gotta we gotta storm the school tomorrow and rescue those kids because the minute Callie finds out his dad is dead, they're all dead anyway. So now it really pushes the plot forward. But these kids are grieving. They're mourning about the whole thing. Uh and they're not sure if they're gonna do anything. And so they're shining the spotlight to let them know <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna storm the castle either way. Are you in or are you out? Yeah, what we have here is Billy. Billy is in grief because his roommate Joey Trotta got killed. He doesn't want to do it anymore. But it's his buddies. His buddies rally around Sean Astin and say, you can do it. You're our leader. And he's like, no, I can't do it. There's no rich stuff. And they're like, no, you got to do it. And this is where the, the FBI and the kids are flashing mirror signals back and forth to each other that the, the raid starts tomorrow. Right. So now they kind of force themselves to do it. They have to, they have to make this work somehow. Somehow, because if they don't, their parents will lose the goondocks. Yes, they're going to lose the goondocks and the uh, and uh, and the bad guys win. Yeah. And Ace Merrill will find the body first. Yes. And and he'll get on the news and and Vern dropped the comb. (laughs) Why was Vern not in this movie? Yeah, what was he doing, Jerry O'Connell? Was he working on sliders at that point? Maybe he was. I have no idea, but he would have been fantastic in this movie. Uh, he, he wouldn't have been the fat kid anymore. <laughs> he would have been a Colombian. <laughs> okay, so here we go. We're at the end of the movie. This movie's almost over. Uh, here we go. It's the final day, the final assault, and uh, a lot's going to happen all at once the minute daybreak hits. Right, so once once the sun comes up, they're just they, uh, Coogan, Snuffy, decides to – this is the first step in their – uh, in their move, he fakes a asthma attack. <laughs> he uh, he falls to the ground and they call Luis Kelly out of the office because it's that serious. So they all go and they're they're gathered around. Meanwhile, uh, Billy and uh, and yogurt have to sneak their way into the dean's office and they have another kid working as their signal man with running water. Yeah, there's one more variable you forgot to mention, that uh, the FBI has cut the power to the school, so there's no power. And so Callie cannot see on the news or hear on the radio that his father's dead. Right, so they're they're completely blacked out. They don't know what's going on. He's he's trying to negotiate with them. He's like, look, I want the power back on or I'm going to start shooting somebody. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they're like, we're working on it. It's out everywhere, you know, of course, because lying is the only only way to get – uh, to get away with this. It's lying and you have about an hour until uh, he starts executing kids. So they're on a timeline now. Okay, yeah, so here's the big action piece in the movie where, uh, well, I guess we had the one with Sean Astin running across the meadow before, but here's the second one. Sean Astin and Yogurt have to sneak into the headmaster's office through the air vents. 
there were a lot of famous air vent scenes back then. You had uh, you had uh, Judd Nelson in the air vent in uh, or was it this, just the ceiling in uh, in Breakfast Club? You had, mm-hmm. you know, Die Hard with John McClane crawling through the uh, the uh, the vent. And you have Yogurt and Billy Tepper clawing through the vents to get to uh, the dean's office. Yeah, as they would have said on Mystery Science Theater, thank, thank God these air vents are always human-sized. Right. <laughs> well, it is Sean Astin. I mean, and yogurt was smaller than him, so I guess they fit easily. I know I couldn't fit in an air vent. Yeah, fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not trying to sneak into an air vent anytime again soon. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you had to cut you out last time, huh? <laughs> yeah, to get the jaws of life. I was not going to get out of there any, very easily. Okay, so here's the chip switch. So Sean Astin sneaks into the headmaster's office, and he dangles down through the air vents. And he gets some cool stunt work from Sean Astin. He's doing, like, uh, tough guy stuff. And he gets in there, and he and Yogurt have to negotiate how to switch the chip between the detonator and the RC plane. And there's a great moment where... Uh, one of the main terrorists comes back in the room, and Sean Astin has to go flinging himself over the desk to hide. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a very tense scene. It's probably one of the more tense scenes in the movie because he has to hide under the desk because the terrorist is coming to get a folder to verify that Snuffy actually has asthma. <laughs> yeah. And Snuffy, we're, we're kind of glossing over Snuffy. He's the main part of this plan, that he has to fake this asthma attack down in the cafeteria, and he's looking at Callie's wrist detonator with the red light on, and he can see when Sean Astin pulls out the the chip, the red light in the guy's wrist thing goes off. So so Snuffy has to like redouble his efforts and make his asthma attack even more dramatic to when his light is off because he's he can see when the chip is being switched. Right. So it's a very very tense scene. Very well done. The cutting between the cafeteria and the dean's office. Yeah, this is a great scene. I, I love this. It's a very it's this is a straight up action movie right here, and it's really well done. And props to Yogurt. Yogurt was the uh, brains of the operation the entire time. You know what I read? I was reading the trivia for this movie. Is That character was not supposed to be named Yogurt. But during rehearsals or something, he spilled Yogurt on himself during some take. And so the kids just started calling him Yogurt, and they just worked it into the script. Perfect. I thought he was just a big Spaceballs fan. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It was all Spaceballs. So, yeah, so uh, Sean Astin switches the detonator chip so they are no longer to blow up this. No, they are no longer able to blow up the school with the wrist detonator. And at this point, uh, here comes the FBI storming the school and it all starts going real well. They take out the, the roof gunners with some snipers. They fly helicopters down. They blow off, blow up all the top guys at the top. But it gets foiled because one of the roof guards drops a grenade and it tips off Cali that steps going down. Right, and meanwhile, Billy and and Yogurt, they get out of the uh, – their signal was to keep the water running in the sink. And so the kid the kid does his job. He turns it off because a, uh, a terrorist was in there to use the bathroom. And props to the terrorist because he decides to wash his hands, <laughs> And which, you know, I didn't think terrorists really cared about hygiene, but apparently this one cares about germs and not getting sick. It's kind of cool. Okay, whatever. He'd rather kill somebody with a gun than kill them with disease. Okay, um, so he's washing his hands as Yogurt and uh, and Billy uh, come out of the vent, and the, so they have to uh, overtake him <laughs> with the help from uh, Ricardo and I think Hank all help him, and they they're able to overtake him and they guide everybody to the basement to protect them just in case the building blows up. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about this for a second. So. 
Yogurt and Billy sneak down through the air vent, end up in the bathroom. One It's like two against one against a terrorist with a machine gun. Can you imagine the embarrassment if you were overpowered by Sean Astin and Yogurt in a fight if you were a terrorist? Oh, that guy would never be able to show his face at the terrorist uh, class reunion uh, ever again. <laughs> well, although then again, one guy was overpowered one-on-one against Will Wheaton earlier. Well, but he was Will Wheaton, the mobster's son. They would give him a pass, right? But I love how, yeah, Sean Astin and Yogurt have to fight this guy. But So they bring in two of their bigger friends just to make it a little more realistic that these guys could beat up the terrorist. Right, and, they, and they're able to knock him out and, and go out there. And I think they both take – one of them takes a machine gun uh, to sort of protect them. But at that point, the track record of these kids with a machine gun is not good. <laughs> yes. Will Wheaton 0 for 1 so far. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so, yeah, this is the end of the movie that uh, the kids kind of overpower the remaining terrorists on the ground. Uh, all the – Callie and his top men have been drawn to the roof because there's action with helicopters and guns up there. And Billy leads all the kids down uh, underneath the cafeteria in the secret room. And so all the kids are basically safe, and it's going to set up a one-on-one confrontation at the end between Billy and Callie. Right, and and um, props to them for not making it this unrealistic, like uh, – equal fight between the two because Callie easily overpowers him. Yeah. And meanwhile, because of the explosion, the soldiers outside have been injured, but Louis Gossett Jr. decided to follow him. Okay, yeah, let's let's map out this ending here. So Billy has to send all the kids down into the secret room and then he you have to push a little uh display rack over the door on top of the door so nobody can catch the kids down there. That means Billy's basically trapped. He's the only one left in the school. Callie immediately outsmarts him and grabs him. It's a hostage situation where the FBI starts surrounding and the Marines are all storming in. Callie takes Billy up to the office, holds him hostage with a gun to his head. And basically it's everyone trying to storm the office. Callie has Sean Aston with a gun to his head. And this is the moment of, of truth. Will the uh, detonation of the explosives actually work? Right. And, and the, the, the best Lewis Callie's face when he hits the button and that plane goes up. It was the most frustrated but awesome facial expression ever in film because he turns Sean Aston around and just screams at him. Yeah. Yeah. Callie presses the button to try to blow up the explosives. Nothing happens. Instead, the plane, the RC plane takes off. Right. And he's <laughs> the frustration on his face. I've felt that frustration as a parent. <laughs> When you've tried to blow up your own house? Well, you know, I, you know, insurance costs a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Callie has a wonderful look of frustration when he can't blow up the school, and he's terrified. He's like, oh, no, I'm going to die here. And he's just about to shoot Sean Astin. And this is where all the other good guys burst in at once, where Louis Gossett jumps in the, the window first, right? Right. Louis Gossett jumps in the window. I think he has a gun, and the other soldier has a gun, too. Uh, but meanwhile, Callie is holding Sean Astin up against him. He's got a gun to his head and party's over at some point for somebody. Cause it was, you know, life or death for somebody in that room. And then there is a surprising plot twist where sloth slides down on a sword through the flag and saves the day. Hey, you guys. Yeah. Uh, we were missing mama Fratelli in this movie. I think she would have been great as a uh, mama, mama Callie. Yeah, I was trying to figure out how to work her into the, the this podcast. I couldn't do it. But, you know, it'd be great if she, instead of, uh, you know, she was dead by then. But if she had been in the movie, if she played uh, Mama Trotta, 
instead of Jerry Orbach, and uh, she had to negotiate the release of Will Wheaton. Okay, and that really, that's the end of the movie, that uh, the bad guy, Callie, is going to shoot Sean Astin. Louis Gossett, the headmaster, comes diving in the window, distracts the bad guy. The bad guy turns towards him, and just when he turns, the FBI comes in behind him and blows his head off. One of the best headshots in film, too, because it just explodes out of his forehead. Yeah, his forehead just explodes, and that's why. Well, I was looking at the rating of this movie. I'm like, oh, it is rated R. I guess it kind of it is kind of graphic in certain scenes. Yeah, it's not a movie I'd watch with my younger kids. <laughs> yeah, they can do the Goonies and Stand by Me, although maybe not Stand by Me. Uh, I watch. I, well, I have a tradition with my kids when they when they're 13, they can watch Stand by Me because that's the age of the kids in the movie. There's a lot of swearing in Stand by Me. There is a ton of swearing, but I tell them, do not repeat any of the words that you hear in this movie to your friends. So when they're 10, they can watch Goonies. When they're 13, they can watch Stand By Me. What age do your kids get to watch Toy Soldiers? Uh, 17. <laughs> but they can't watch it with me, at least that first scene with the phone call. I, I don't know if I can awkwardly sit there with my children while I watch that scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's nothing more fun than watching really hardcore sex stuff in movies with your kids. Yeah, you just kind of like, oh, I'm going to go get a snack. I'll be back in three minutes or four minutes. Yeah. If you want to listen to some nice, awkward, office-style humor, uh, I, I suggest people listen to my episode of Staff Picks on The Wicker Man, where I have my daughter on there, and my 18-year-old daughter and I are talking about orgies. Oh, that's uh, – oh, boy. <laughs> it was, uh, hopefully that movie wasn't the first time she had heard that. Maybe even more awkward. Oh, no, that's her favorite movie. But I, once we got into the episode, I'm like, oh, this scene's going to be real awkward to talk about here, isn't it? Oh, boy, I couldn't imagine. <laughs> anyway, so that's the end of the movie. Callie is dead. The last scene of the movie is basically uh, Louis Gossett Jr. and Sean Astin making up and being, being buddies again. And But he says, you know what? You're still doing pots and pans the rest of the semester, even though you saved the school. Well, you know, if you don't get consequences, you'll never learn. That's right. And that is the true meaning of rich stuff. There you go. <laughs> Sometimes the rich stuff are the friends and the terrorists you meet along the way. Yes. <laughs> and poor Will Wheaton, who died. Yeah. Uh, poor went out for Will Wheaton and his terrible, inconsistent New York accent. That's right. All right. And with that, uh, that's really the end of the movie that all the kids are freed. And it, you know what I think is hilarious? All the kids are freed, and there's not a single parent there. Yeah, where are the parents at that point? Like they were they were just at a press conference or at a meeting. You'd think they'd be waiting outside for their kids. <laughs> well, then again, there there was a 50% chance all these kids would be massacred by the terrorists. So maybe they didn't want the parents there. Yeah, I guess there was like an explosion radius. <laughs> yeah, the only parent there who was waiting wishing for one of their kids to be killed is the dad from Stand by Me, who's like, "Yes, kill Gordy. We are, I I lost the one kid. Lose the other one too. I hate him." Yeah, and his friends, the thief and two Phoebes. <laughs> this is for the milk money. <laughs> yeah, don't tell me she bought a new skirt. <laughs> I I really hope how much fun we're having is coming through to people who are listening to this. We're really enjoying this podcast. There's a lot of inside jokes if you haven't watched Stand By Me. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing with my audience. I assume most of my audience would know the Goonies and Stand By Me very well, hopefully. I would hope so, especially if you like obscure movies or movies that were, you know, that had a sort of a popularity during the 80s and 90s that died down. Um, I'm pretty sure they've seen Stand By Me. I'm pretty sure they've seen The Goonies. 
I hope so. And now I am hoping you all run out and watch Toy Soldiers if you've never seen it. Or if you have seen it before, go watch it again and enjoy it from this perspective where you just compare it to the Goonies and Stand By Me the whole time. Yeah, please do. And again, I'm just shocked I missed this movie. I have no idea how I missed it when it came out. I was right in the age range. I just didn't see it. And I'm so happy to uh, I'm so happy about other people that have inspired me to go watch it. Now, hopefully I can inspire some people to go find it, too. There you go. You can find it on uh, iTunes and Amazon. Uh, you can also, I, I'm sure, find a physical copy somewhere like your local library uh, on DVD. But uh, it's 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 easy to find and it's a great movie. I'm glad you mentioned how people can find it because how I watched it is the most Mario way possible. I have an old VHS tape of it. I bought at Half Price Books for 99 cents about 10 years ago. Uh, see, I don't have a VCR anymore. Um, and I'm sort of kicking myself because, you know, VHS, there's something about it that uh, you can't get with the crisp image of a DVD or a Blu-ray. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's still a crappy format. <laughs> Well, I mean, the, the the actual serious answer is there's a lot of stuff that was never converted to DVD to begin with. So old VHS stuff is the only way you're going to find it. Right. And there's a whole documentary about that on uh, if you stream anywhere, it's on Peacock uh, about uh, about the the revival of the VHS tape and how there's uh -huh. people have become almost historians when they they would go into old video stores as they close and just buy up all their stock and build up their collections. There's people with like tens of thousands of VHS cassettes in their basement on shelves because you can't find, especially there's like obscure horror movies. And I know that's your thing um, mm -hmm. that you can't find anywhere uh, except on VHS. Yeah. And that's the thing. There is a, an advantage to still having a VHS player. And, and for years I had so many VHS tapes and then I converted them all to DVD. And it, that took decades. That took so long. And now everyone asks me, why don't you have Blu-rays? I'm like, I can't convert all these DVDs. I have like 1,900 DVDs. I can't convert all those. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I don't have that many DVDs. Um, I do buy some streaming stuff, like the digital copies now. Uh, like Toy Soldiers, I bought digitally. I didn't buy, the, buy it on DVD um, just because I don't have enough space. <laughs> if I bought every movie I wanted on DVD, we'd be in trouble. But I am – proud to say i watched this on vhs and it's still one of the 50 vhs tapes i still have that i've never converted so this is one of the diehards <laughs> it's amazing yeah, oh the other good thing is on dvd you can see how crisp it is uh, uh will wheaton's tough guy earring you can see it in high def oh that nice uh that nice dangly cross earring he was wearing because you know the bad boys had the earrings that's right i bought it at a flea market i took it off a guy i killed down in brooklyn <laughs> Anyway, I'd really love if Will Wheaton hears this episode, and I hope he enjoys it. But uh, I think we have sufficiently covered so Toy Soldiers. Do you agree? I agree, and we tease Will Wheaton in love. Uh, he's he's a uh, he's an incredible personality online, and and I have always uh, appreciated his work, even if I do tease him for his horrible accent. I like to think he probably agrees with everything we've said in this in this episode. I would like to believe that as well, and I'll probably sleep better tonight believing that. Yeah, you don't want a mafia kid after you. Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> or Will Wheaton. Yeah. <laughs> okay, anything else you want to say? Anything you want to plug? Do you have other podcasts if people want to find you somewhere? Yeah, if you want to find me, if you uh, if you like my uh, hearing my voice, I guess. I do a weekly podcast called Peace, Love, and Robots. It's a podcast about anything and everything and all of that's in between. It's uh, It's just me 
talking about whatever's on my mind. And this past week I talked about uh, how I'm tired of people telling me that I should watch Ted Lasso. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I also have a book coming out hopefully in the next month or so. It'll probably be out by the time this is released. So uh, you can ch- find all that stuff uh, on my Spreaker page. Just look for uh, Vox, V-O-X, Robotica, R-O-B-O-T-I-C-A, Vox Robotica. Yeah, and I will say this in all seriousness. You are one of the people I wish was on the podcast more often because you and I are so similar in the way we talk and our sensitive humor and stuff. So I, uh, you should totally invite me on to your other podcast just because I love freeform podcasts where it's not about a specific topic where you're just kind of rambling because I think you and I would be really fun to listen to. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we, we definitely would have to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm bummed that we couldn't connect on The Stand, uh, talking about CBS's mm-hmm. The Stand. Uh because we had differing opinions, but uh, enough jokes probably to go around. Oh, yeah. Well, let's make that happen. At some point, I will have you back on Staff Picks again for sure. But I want to go on your podcast. So I'm formally inviting myself onto your podcast. There you go. I'll, I'll come up with a topic and I'll let you know. All right. And remember, I am Italian and I might be in the mafia. So make sure you have a healthy fear of me. Oh, I do. I have a healthy fear of you and your opera music. Okay. And again, once again, thank you for listening to Staff Picks. My name is Mario Lanza. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. Until then, I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Pick up that banana.